for that. Psalms 103 tonight. I'd like to read the first five verses of the 103rd Psalm. The Word of God says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases, who redeemeth thy life from destruction, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfieth thy mouth with good things, so that thy youth is renewed like the eagles. Let's read verse 2 once more and then we'll pray. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I'd ask that you'd bless your word this evening and that you would speak to each heart according to thy will. Father, we, just, we, we know as we've come to your house tonight that it's not on accident, but that we're here by divine appointment. And Lord, we are conscious to surrender and submit ourselves to your Holy Spirit and your word. As we do that, Lord, we trust that you'll speak to our hearts. We know it's your desire to draw closer to us, but Lord, we've got to draw nigh unto you. So I ask that each heart would be surrendered in such a way tonight. Lord, that Jesus Christ will get the glory for anything worth mentioning, worth speaking of, worth remembering that will take place tonight. Father, we love you, and we do ask all of these things in that name which is above every name, in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. In the 103rd Psalm, I'm interested in the phrase that David uses in verse number 2, where he says to us to forget not all his, speaking of the Lord's, benefits. There's some interesting, uh, you know, language going on in this psalm. David is uh, speaking to himself, so to speak. Someone said to me uh, this morning, whenever the service had let out, you know, I always get out there before anyone else, and uh, that way I can get out to the restaurants first. And uh, I was standing out there waiting to shake hands, and I was looking for the little door wedge, you know, and I was talking to him. I said, well, where did it go? Where have they put it? They stepped around the door. They said, we thought you was out here talking to yourself. I said, well, I am. And they said, well, that's all right as long as you don't start answering yourself. Amen. And uh, David, to a degree, is speaking to himself. Or uh, more particularly, he is speaking to a part of himself. He's speaking to his soul. Now, we know, and we touched on it this morning, that man is a triune being. We are made in the image of God. And as a triune being, we're made of three parts. We're made of the body. That's the part that we can feel, that we can see, that we can experience. For some of us, that you can smell. Amen. And then we have the spirit. The spirit is that part of a man that can communicate to and respond to God. The spirit is that part of a man that is dead before he is born again. It must be quickened, the Word of God says, or awakened within a man. That's the function of the Word of God initially in the process of salvation. If we could call it a process, we could argue over semantics. But that's the reason that oftentimes you'll hear folks say, I didn't come to Him, He came to me. Well, if you got saved, you came to Him. But what you mean by that is that before you even knew you needed to be saved, He touched on your heart, spoke to you. And it's the spiritual man that must be awakened and quickened. It's the spiritual man that can respond to God. The Bible says that the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, that they are spiritually discerned. 
For a lost individual, the spiritual man has not been awakened. He is dead within him. So the natural man has no capacity to communicate with God. It's not within him to do so. That's the reason he must be born again. Life must be breathed into him through the Word of God. You say, how does that happen? Well, the Word of God says that we're born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the Word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. The Word of God is quick and powerful, meaning living and powerful. And it has the capacity to awaken in a human being their need of Christ's salvation. But then there is a third part of man, and that is the soul. I've heard many definitions given to the soul, and I think many of them are accurate. I, I think the soul is one of those things that uh, only God could really describe it accurately, and He doesn't do so in a, in a simple, concise manner in one verse in the Bible. But uh, I believe that if we were to speak of the soul, we would be speaking of the seat of consciousness within a person. It's that which makes us who we are. It's that awareness that we have that we are alive and that we are a created being, that there is a God. It's our mind, if we will. Or some folks say it is the seat of our emotions, and I believe that to be equally true. It is that which we experience with. It is that which we are aware with. And David, as he's writing this psalm, he does not speak to his body, and he does not necessarily speak to his spirit. By the way, the spirit doesn't have to be reprimanded or corrected. The spirit is always in key with God. It's just a question of whether we're surrendered and whether we're under the sway and leading and guidance of the spiritual man. That's why the Word of God says that if we walk in the Spirit, we'll not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. But David rather speaks to his soul in this psalm. He speaks to that part of him which feels and that part of him which is conscious and aware. And as he does so, it tells us a few things. It tells us that the soul, or the mind, if you will, has the capacity to be wrong about things. Did you know that sometimes your feelings are wrong? Sometimes they are. I, I quit a long time ago dismissing feelings. I know a lot of people that just dismiss feelings. They, well, feelings don't matter. Well, God's made us as an emotional creature. There's no question. And feelings, whether they're right or wrong, they're still valid because we still feel them. But there is an important truth here that our feelings can be wrong about a matter. There are times when how we feel with something is not in line with the reality of it. And I would propose to you tonight that that's exactly what David is dealing with. David knows some things to be true, but he doesn't feel that they're so. He knows from the Word of God. You see, there's that external witness. There's an internal witness, mind you. That's the Spirit of God. He's an internal witness. But then there's an external witness, and that's the Word of God. And both of those things will always agree one with the other. So David, he sees the external witness. He sees the Word of God. He knows the history of what God's done for him. But then he looks at this other thing within him, his soul, how he feels, and he says they do not agree, and one of them must be adjusted. And so as he seeks to adjust something, now I know this is radical in this day that we live with, but do you know that David didn't seek to adjust the Word of God? David just sought to adjust himself. Amen? I know that's radical thinking in this world that we live in. Most men think when the Word of God doesn't agree with what you like and how you feel and how you want to live, why y'all just go along and take a little knife and cut out the pieces that you don't think sound good and get rid of them and change it. And 
undermine it. And by the way, I'm, I'm not against Hebrew and I'm not against Greek, amen? I mean, when I go to the store, I buy the Hebrew hot dogs, amen? I'm not against Hebrew and Greek, but you have some that seek to undermine our English Bible through the Hebrew and Greek. Not everybody that owns a Strong's Concordance does that, amen? But there are some that do. And some would have us to uh, completely dismiss what the Word of God says and find some obscure and convoluted Hebrew or Greek meaning that we can cling to to say that's what it means because it agrees with how we feel about it. You see, the truth of the matter is the Word of God is sure, stable, perfect, spotless, and settled forever, whether we like that or not. And so David, as he examines what's going on within himself, He makes his mind up that his soul must be adjusted. And if his soul is to be adjusted, then he will speak to his soul and remind his soul of some things. Could I say to you that there are some important things we have a tendency to forget sometimes? I remember talking to a man one time and he said to me, and you've said this, I'm sure, and I have too. But he said, I was going to tell you something and I forgot it. And I said to him, I said, well, brother, it must not have been very important. Is the first person ever said this to me. He said, oh, no, that's not true. He said, I all the time forget important things. (laughs) Sometimes there's some important things we can forget, some things that matter. And though we may have an academic awareness of them, sometimes our soul needs to be reminded of some things. David says that his soul has forgotten some things. David says, my emotions are operating as if some things have never happened. And so it needs a good talking to. And there might be somebody in this room tonight that you know the truth, but you don't feel the truth, and your soul needs a good talking to. And let me just, let's just take a moment from the Word of God and see what David talked to his soul about. He mentions five things that his soul had forgotten. Five things that though he knew them to be true, he did not feel them to be so, and he must be reminded of because they would help him as he sought to serve God. Notice first off what it says in verse number 3. The Word of God says, Forget not all his benefits, who forgiveth all thine iniquities. Now let me remind you tonight that David is not talking about a, 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 a mental or a cognitive forgetfulness. But rather David is talking about an emotional forgetfulness. He didn't say that my mind is forgot. He said, my soul has forgot these things. And he says concerning his soul, I want to remind you, no matter how you feel, that God has forgiven you of every one of the sins that you ever have committed or ever will commit. Can I say that there's times when we lose the wonder of what God did for us at Calvary? I know it seems impossible. I know that some would look at this passage and they'd say, surely, preacher, a person couldn't forget that God has forgiven. Surely a person couldn't forget that they've been to Calvary. But can I remind you that the Word of God says in the book of 1 Peter that if a man uh, lacketh any of these things, speaking of patience and speaking of all these fruit that are added to salvation, the Bible says that he is blind and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Peter is not necessarily saying a person academically forgets that they've been saved. But what he's saying is that they live in such a way as though they've forgotten that they've been saved. Can I remind you that if you've been saved, your life has been changed. 
You're a blood-washed child of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Your slate has been wiped clean, and not only has your slate been wiped clean, but you've been named a son and a joint heir, and you've been justified in Jesus Christ. You ought to live like it sometimes. Even if you don't feel like it, you ought to live like it. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really, I mean, I'm going to shiver your timbers, so get ready. But did you know that there's times when even this preacher wakes up and he feels like he woke up on the lost side of the bed? I mean, I, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't, I, I, when I was a teenager, there was a period of time in which I struggled with the assurance of my salvation. I've not struggled with it in years. There's lots of folks that do. And, uh, I, and I'm not by any means condescending or, or critical about that. Lots of folks struggle with it. I'm not saying that I wake up and, and, and am doubting my salvation. I'm saying that there's days that I wake up and I know I'm saved, but I don't feel I'm saved. There's days that I wake up, and I mean, I know I'm a child of God, but I don't feel like I'm a child of God. Sometimes there's days that it's because I'm not living like I'm a child of God. But then there's other days uh, when the devil seems to assault my emotions and seems to uh, put a bug in my ear to say, God's forgotten you. God's cast you off. God doesn't love you anymore. And my emotions begin to bend and begin to crumble and begin to say, you know, maybe he's right. And my mind says, no, you know the day, you know the time, you were there, you know it's happened. My soul says, well, my mind may know it, but I don't feel like it. David says we need to consistently remember that God has forgiven us. Let me say that I think there's kind of a third way in which this happens. As a believer, there's times when we live with, well, I won't say undue guilt, because we're always due the guilt for our sins. But there's times when we're living under guilt when we ought to be living under grace. There's times, and don't misunderstand me, I believe sin affects the the fellowship that the believer has with the the personal Lord Jesus Christ. But can I just drop a bomb on you? Do you know that God doesn't forgive you because of how sorry you are? God doesn't forgive you because you promise you'll never do it again. God knows you well enough to know that that's a lie most of the time when you say it, and it is when I say it too. And there's times when I've sinned and I've messed up and I've done wrong. And I'm slow to approach the throne room of grace because I'm fearful I'll do it again one day. Times when I'm saddled with the guilt that Christ has already paid for at Calvary. Times when my emotions say, do not come boldly to the throne of grace. You have no right to do so. And it's in those times that I must quiet my soul and remind myself that no matter how I feel, I'm still redeemed. God's still forgiven me. He's not done it for me. He's done it for His glory. He's not done it because I've done good things, but He's done it because Christ has done righteous things. He's not doing it because of my status, because I have no status. But He's doing it because I've been placed within the person of Jesus Christ. He's doing it not because of my righteousness, but because of His. Sometimes, oh, we usually don't forget up here, but sometimes we'll forget in here that He's forgiven all of our iniquities. All, do you know you'll never commit a sin but what God already knew about it and died on Calvary for it? I don't say that so that you can use First John 1, 9 like the kitchen sink, neighbor. 
I say it because there's times when those that are genuine and sincere in their walk with the Lord are saddled with a paralyzing guilt that hinders them from confessing a sin and forsaking a sin because they're fear- they can't figure out why God would give them another chance. They can't figure out why God would be gracious to them. But you see, here's the problem. Uh, it's not that we've lost sight of what, we, uh, what we're going to be and what we are. It's that we've lost sight of what we used to be. What we need to remember is that we didn't deserve it when God forgave us the first time. We didn't deserve it when we came to Calvary the first time. And we sure don't deserve it now. But He's not forgiving us because we deserve it. If He was, it wouldn't be grace. But it's all of grace. He says, first off, who forgiveth all our iniquity. I want you to notice, secondly, the Bible says, who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases. This is interesting language. You say, why, preacher? Well, because I know Christians who have diseases. Christians in this room have diseases. So what is the psalmist saying when he says, who healeth all thy diseases? Well, I think there's two interpretations, that, if we were to be scripturally honest with it, that we could make. One is that what David is saying is that one day with a glorified body, all of our diseases will be healed. And certainly that is true. One of these days, Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, our vile body shall be made like unto his glorious body. And what a day that that will be when this body is changed. And there are times, I'm sure, when in the throngs of sickness, you begin to feel like it's never going to get any better. It's never going to get any less painful. There are times when we feel that way. Let me remind you that he still healeth all of our diseases. And whether we, He chooses to supernaturally intervene and heal us in this life or heal us when we're given a glorified body, all of our diseases will be healed. But if I'm to be scripturally honest, I don't really think that's what David's talking about. I believe it's true. I don't believe you do damage to Scriptures by drawing that from it. But remember who David is talking to. He's talking to his soul. And he doesn't say, "...who healeth all my diseases." He says, who healeth all thy diseases. He's speaking of diseases of the soul. Is there such a thing as a disease of the soul? I'd propose there is. Sins of the spirit, sins of the heart. Now, I I know some folks that, you know, you can get in the ditch on either side on most subjects. And I know some folks that want to focus so much on sins of the spirit because they want to dismiss sins of the flesh. And I think that's wicked. I know some folks that'll say, for instance, I saw this just back of this. I, I read some article. You've know, you got to be careful. You can get bogged down reading articles. Any idiot, idiot in the world can start a blog. I mean, I've got a blog. Any idiot in the world can start a blog. Google just gives them to you, you know. But I, I, I read this blog post, and this guy was making this point. He, he was talking about his grievances with, with church, and he, and he was a pastor. And he said this. He said, it, it bothers me that Christians are so hung up on the sin of homosexuality, but nothing is said about the sin of gluttony. And he said that the sin of gluttony would be a lot more relevant than the sin of homosexuality to preach on. And I'd say two things about that. One, you might be surprised how relevant it is to preach on the sins of homosexuality in the average church. I'm being honest now. Everybody, everybody just gasps and is shocked, and you, I mean, blow them over with, with a feather whenever uh, there's some scandal in some church. 
But maybe it's because there's not enough preaching against homosexuality and not enough preaching against effeminacy. It's a sin to be effeminate. The Bible condemns effeminacy. And for too long... Oh, boy. You know what? It's a Sunday night. I'm going to preach it anyway. For too long... Now, don't misunderstand me now, what I'm about to say. But for too long, and for an entire generation now, churches have been took over by that which is feminine. I'm not fussing at you ladies. I, lo- I mean, I love ladies. I love ladies so much a married one. I'm not, I mean, don't misunderstand me, but look around at a church house and what do you see? You see flowers. I don't see, I don't see no deer head back there. I don't see no singing bass fish on the wall. I'm not fussing. I'm just merely saying that oftentimes the house of God is presented as being a feminine environment, soft colors. I love the way our auditorium looks. I'm not, I'm not, I mean, I don't, I don't think we ought to camo it up up here. I'm, I'm just merely saying it is a feminine environment oftentimes. And you know why that is? Because there was a whole generation of fathers that were failures in bringing their families to the house of God, and mamas were the ones that were bringing their families to the house of God. But one of the side effects of that is a lot of young men that have grown up in church have grown up in an atmosphere of effeminacy. We need to do what we can to reverse that tide. I I still believe that young men ought to be young men. Young ladies ought to be young ladies. I think that's all right. I don't have a problem with a young lady learning how to shoot a slingshot or crawl up uh, an apple tree. i got no issue with that. But I'm merely saying we ought to teach young ladies to be young ladies. We ought to teach young men to be young men. And probably there wouldn't be half again as many scandals as we've got in churches if preachers would preach as much against effeminacy as they do against sodomy. And both of those things go hand in hand. But this man writing this blog saying that that homosexuality was a bigger problem than gluttony. I'm going to say that I staunchly and starkly disagree with that. I, I, I completely disagree with that because I believe that homosexuality... I don't believe homosexuality is a mental disorder. I believe it's a willful sin. I believe it's a sin that corrupts and perverts and degrades. And oftentimes you have this trend for people to say, well, why do you focus so much against the sins of the flesh? Why don't you worry about the sins of the Spirit that are in the house of God? And I think sometimes you can get in the ditch on that side. But I know some brethren, too, that get in the ditch on the other side. And as long as folks dress right and have their hair right, carry the right Bible, it doesn't matter that they're a bunch of prideful hypocrites. There are some souls' diseases. There are some things that can grip and grasp our soul if God does not break us from that bondage. Pride is one of the chief ones. You know, I found an interesting verse in the Bible. If you read that book, you'll find all kinds of interesting stuff in it. You know, the book of Psalms says this, Only by pride cometh contention. It would have been an astounding thing if the Bible had said that by pride cometh contention. There would have been a lot of truth to that. But do you know that God went a step further and said, Only by pride cometh contention. In other words, if people are fussing and fighting, somebody's ego is involved within it somewhere. Pride is a disease of the soul. Hypocrisy is a disease of the soul. Let me tell you something. Once you've learned how to fake sincerity, it's all downhill from there. There's nothing to stop you once you've learned how to fake sincerity. Once you can well up crocodile tears, once you can uh, give a uh, tenor of, uh, of, of compassion and sympathy within your voice, when it's not there, when you've learned how to play the game, when you've learned all the right answers, there's nothing to stop you from full-blown backsliddenness and reprobateness at that point. 
I'd say hypocrisy is a soul disease. I think what David is talking about here are things... He mentions the the sins and iniquities and our forgiveness from them. But now he's talking about our liberty from them. You see, at first he's talking about God delivering us from our sins. Now he's talking about God delivering us out of our sins. And I believe God didn't just save us just to forgive us. I believe He also saved us to sanctify us and to change us. That word sanctification, I understand that it has the idea of cleansing and washing. I'm not talking about sinless sanctification or the eradication of the flesh. But I am saying this, when God saves a man, He changes a man. Changes him. And oftentimes our soul loses sight of the fact that God has the ability to change us and to break those shackles. You ever felt so despondent because a sin had you so gripped? I have. There's been things that I've allowed into my life at times. Sometimes it'd be something that most folks would think is insignificant. But let me tell you something. Anything that disrupts your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ is not insignificant. Anything. doesn't matter how small it may be. It's not insignificant if it affects your relationship with the Lord. doesn't matter what it is. But there's oftentimes folks that would say, there's no way. I've been, I, I, that, this has had me in bondage for five years, ten years, twenty years, thirty or forty, fifty years. I can never be delivered from this sin, from this soul's disease. That's not what the Bible says. David said, I feel that way sometimes. We can't imagine the things that Old Testament characters struggled with. They didn't have the indwelling of the Holy Ghost like we do. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says in the book of 2 Thessalonians concerning the mystery of iniquity and the worldwide sinfulness that will take place during the time of the tribulation period, it says only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. You know, that's speaking of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a restraining force in this world through His indwelling of those that have been born again. That's the only thing that keeps this world from dropping off into an ocean of iniquity. And it looks like it has already. So imagine what the Old Testament saints must have struggled with. I don't know about you, but usually when I do wrong, you know the only thing that stops me is when the Holy Ghost says, Oh, you're about to sin. They didn't have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We can't imagine the things that they struggled with. And there's no telling the things that David struggled with. We see the big mistakes that David made in his life. And certainly David felt at times as though there were things that gripped his soul. But he said, the Lord's able to heal me of this disease. The Lord's able to take it away from me, though I can't get rid of it on my own. No matter how you feel, you may feel like you'll never have victory. But through Jesus Christ, you can have victory. Let me say it again. I I don't, you know, so oftentimes we don't, we don't preach about victory because we're scared of sounding like charismatics. But let me tell you something. God's promised us victory through Jesus Christ. Now, we, we may go to meet the chopping block and we'll still have the victory. I'm not preaching health and wealth. I'm preaching that we're more than conquerors through Him that loved us. You can have victory over sin in your life through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ if you'll surrender yourself to Him. Notice a third thing. He says, who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases, who redeemeth thy life from destruction. This is sort of a two-part point. 
goes along with the next thing that David is about to say. But I believe what David is saying here is he's saying, don't ever forget where you could be today. There's a very interesting paradigm that takes place. I was talking to a pastor friend about this the other day. We were talking about young people, and he said, you know, he told me, he said, Brother Toby, I've got to confess to you. He said, and I, he said, I made a statement in front of my, my church and told them that I was wrong and I was sorry for it. He said, I just, he said, in, in my older years, he's in his 40s, that's not old, but I guess to some it is. He said, in my older years, he said, I'm getting frustrated with young people. He said, I love young people, but I get frustrated with them. He said, and I find myself making statements from the pulpit sometime, you know, about, well, I don't understand this young generation. They don't work and they're lazy and things of that sort. And so we got to talking about this young generation. And we got to talking about the, the paradigm of their faults and mistakes versus their parents and their grandparents. And something you find is this, that every generation values their own qualities and excuses their own iniquities. doesn't matter what it is. You can go back through the history just of our country, for instance, and you'll find a time when uh, it wasn't very common for young people. I mean, every, there's always been young people that have gotten into trouble. But you, you roll the clock back, and there was a time when, when young people were not getting into the things that they're getting into today. It just wasn't common. You can go back, for instance, let's just give this a for instance. You can go back to the 60s and you'll find at a time when young people were in particularly getting involved in sin, even at a young age. Now, you go back even more into the 50s, and I understand it wasn't like the, uh, you know, the Cleaver's household. I'm aware of that. But you'll find, some of you that grew up during the 50s, that you'd never even heard of the things that the kids in the 60s were getting into. And yet you roll things back a little further, and you get before the Great Depression, you find a time called the Roaring Twenties. I'm saying there's an interesting generational paradigm that takes place between people. And when we speak of generations, we have to speak of individual generations. We can't slap a time frame on it. You have to look at what an individual generation, who they were raised by. And I made the statement to this preacher, I said, you know, it seems as though young people today are not drifting out into sin as deeply as oftentimes their parents did. Open sins of the flesh. Stop and think about it for a moment. Some of you growing up got into more than your kids have gotten into. Some of you growing up got into more than your grandkids are getting into. doesn't mean that they don't have sin in their life, but it means that the sin that they are experiencing oftentimes is more sins of the Spirit than it is sins of the flesh. I grew up in a Christian school home. Oh, I got into a few things here and there, but now I'm going to be honest. I'm not bragging on myself because, I mean, I was rotten in a lot of ways. But, but I would say that most parents would count themselves lucky if all their kids got into were the handful of things that I got into. I didn't get out in the depth and murk of sin. doesn't mean that I didn't have hidden sins of the heart and of the flesh. doesn't mean that I wasn't headed to the same devil's hell. doesn't mean that I wasn't just as wicked. But here's a, unique, here's a unique thing about the church. There is no context in which young people today can glorify God concerning their past mistakes. You see, those of you that got out in the depths and the murk of sin, there's a context for you to stand up in church and say, I was a drunkard, but God saved me. I was a drug addict, but God saved me. 
Whereas young people today, they have more sins of the heart and of the spirit. You don't find many young people standing up in church and saying, I used to be lazy and God saved me out of it. Right? I, I, I used to be prideful and God saved me out of it. You, you don't hear that. I say all that to say this, and I know we took a scenic route, but you'll take one up to Cade's Cove when the leaves change. So take one with your preacher every now and then. I say all that to, to say this. For my generation and especially those of us raised in good homes, we oftentimes can't look at where we were. We have to look at where we could have been. Let me say that again. Oftentimes we don't look at where we were. We look at where we could have been. I was saved as a 10-year-old boy. If I'm going to brag about the Lord, I can't do a whole lot of bragging about where I was. Now, I was headed to hell and He saved me. I was lost and undone and He saved me. But my life was not a wreck at 10 years old. But me and my wife were talking the other day. We were going down the roster of, uh, of the folks that we graduated with. And we were looking at life after life that has just been wrecked. I'm talking about Christian school kids. Life after life that has just wound up in pieces. And I could only lift my hand to heaven and say that the Lord has redeemed my life. From destruction. I could have been there just as easily as them. Oh, it's not that God brought me out of it. It's that God barred me from entering into it. David is speaking about where he could have been. You know what it means to be redeemed, to be purchased. In other words, the idea as he's speaking about his soul is as though his soul was a slave destined for that place. Certainly your soul is when you're lost. You're destined for destruction and despair. But he says, God bought me and brought me out of that place. I say that to say this. Listen, if you're one of those that was in the depth and murk of sin, God saved you out of it, brother, shout it out when you get a chance to. But if you weren't, don't hang your head. I wasn't. Don't hang your head. Because there's a lot of folks whose life is a mess but for the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? And my life would be a mess but for the Lord Jesus Christ. If it wasn't for God in my life, there's no telling where I would be or where I could be. And sometimes you ought to just remember when you're feeling down just how far down you could be if it wasn't for the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no reason you don't have a needle in your arm except for the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no reason that you're not dying in a hospital somewhere except for the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the reason that your life is not in pieces tonight. And sometimes even when we forget it, we ought to try to remember it. We see in this passage that He forgiveth all thine iniquities. We see that He healeth all thy diseases. We see that He redeemeth thy life from destruction. Here's the flip side. Who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies. I told you this is a two-part point, so to speak. David, first off, says, don't ever forget where you could have been. But then he says, don't ever forget where you are now. Who crowneth thy head with loving kindness and tender mercies. I'm just honest with you. I don't know any other way to be. But oftentimes we forget just how, we, how good we've got it as a child of God. We forget. Notice it says with loving kindness. That's interesting. 
That, that when that, by, when the Word of God talks about kindness, do you know that that same word is translated with the idea of mercy? When he says loving kindness, and then he's going to talk about tender mercies, it's almost like he's trying to give us a double portion of the same thought, of the idea of the mercy of God in our lives. You remember what Jeremiah said as he walked through a city that was on fire, that was nothing but rubble. And there he looked at the, the beautiful city, Jerusalem. There it is in an ash heap. And he says of the Lord, he says, Great is thy faithfulness. Thy mercies are new every morning. Every morning. We need to be careful because sometimes we forget just how good God is to us. I mean, sometimes it's easy. I, don't, don't misunderstand me now. I, I have my days where I get up and I want to know why God did what He did and why He did it this way instead of that way. And You know, those days you get up feeling like if you was God, you'd do it a lot better. Oh, you may not have days like that, but I do. I do. And sometimes it's easy to feel like, well, I just can't figure out God. And I don't know why He's doing things this way. And I wish He'd do things differently. On those days, we just need to pause when our soul has forgotten and remember that we've got a crown upon our head. You know, the idea of a crown is the idea of authority, status, and privilege. And what is, what is the authority, status, and privilege that God has placed upon our head? It's His mercy. In a world that's going to endure the wrath of God, and it will one day, we've been crowned with mercy. We have a, a, a symbol of authority, and that's that God has had mercy upon our lives. We need to forget, or we need to remember, I'll say it in a minute, we need to remember lest we forget, God's the only reason we draw breath. God's the only reason that we draw breath. I mean, He literally, he, He's the only reason that you woke up today. If it hadn't been for Him, the psalmist said, I, I laid me down and slept and awoke because the Lord sustained me. That's what he said. The only reason you opened your eyes this morning is because God allowed it. You say, well, that don't seem fair. Well, you're not God. He is. It is fair. I, I, I was talking to someone the other day. You know, everybody gets all twisted up over God's rights and God's authority. and They do. I mean, everybody gets all just twisted up. They'll say, well, you know, you petty God, and how dare he, and how could God be jealous? And I've told this illustration before, but you bear with me. There might be a person here or two that hasn't heard it. If someone was breaking your house and start to walk away with some of your goods, you'd get jealous real quick. You'd want them to drop your goods, get out of your house, to not lay a finger on that which belongs to you, and nobody would fault you. You know why? Because it belongs to you. You see, we don't see a problem with someone getting jealous over something that belongs to them. That's their right to do so. Guess what, friend? You belong to God. If you're a child of God, you belong to Him. If you're lost, you still belong to Him. Everything in this world belongs to Him. He is the Creator. There's not a drop of the ocean that isn't His. There ain't a grain of sand that doesn't have God's name on it. There's not a wisp of air that anybody breathes, but what it belongs to the Almighty God. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, lest we should wonder. When God, I mean, he, buddy, he owns it furnished. Amen. The whole thing is his. And he has the right to take it away from you if he wants to. And if you've got anything, it's because God's shown mercy on you. Not because you deserve it, but because God's shown mercy 
on you. Let me share with you one final one and then we're done. We see that He forgives our iniquities. We see that He heals our soul's diseases. We see He redeems our life from destruction. And we've seen that He crowns us with loving kindness and tender mercies. But this is interesting. And what an interesting way for this passage to close with this thought. It says this, Who satisfieth thy mouth with good things, so that thy youth is renewed like the eagle. He satisfies our mouth with good things. You stop and think about the idea of contentment. The Bible says that godliness with contentment is great gain. We ought to learn what contentment really means. We live in a society where we are comfortable with the idea of excess. That's just true, right? Okay, making sure there's a few of you acted like you weren't sure. Let me ask you this. How many of you are wearing the only thread of clothes that you own? No. How many of you ate the last scrap of food in your house today? See, the reality is this. Being satisfied does not necessarily mean living in excess. You know what our soul has a tendency to forget? Listen carefully now. Our soul has a tendency to forget that we have everything we need. We do. We have everything we need. We may not have everything we want. But you see, that word satisfied, that could be taken two different ways. They're satisfied in the sense of I've got as much as I want. Like if a person was to say, well, I'm satisfied with everything that I have. And then there's the idea of satisfied that I've got everything I need, as if we were to say their thirst or their hunger has been satisfied. It's the Christmas season, and uh, there's no doubt that some of you got a lot of things that you didn't need, right? (laughs) That's Christmas. That's just part of it. We're blessed to live in a country where most folks, if they've really got a mind to get something, they can get it. Makes it tough to buy for folks. You've got to buy stuff you know that they don't want, you know? You ever give someone a gift and thought to yourself as you gave it to them, they're going to do everything they can to find some place to get rid of this within, before January's over. I don't even want this. Why did I get them, you know, Merry Christmas? The truth of the matter is sometimes we feel like our needs aren't met, but if we're really to take inventory, our needs have been met. We all want things. I don't care who you are. There's something you want. My dad always says this when Christmas comes around. He always says, well, I don't want nothing. I don't want nothing. This year, Mama got him a 22 caliber Henry, Bo- or Henry Golden Boy lever action rifle. Go ahead and take a lap, you know. He said, I don't want nothing. He said, I don't want nothing. I didn't see him giving that back when he unwrapped it. We all want something. I don't care who you are. We all want something. But in the midst of our wants, we need to be careful lest we forget that we've already got everything we need. There's a fine line sometimes. We let those wants begin to rule us and run us. Nothing wrong with wanting things. But we need to never forget that He's supplied all of our need according to His riches in Christ Jesus. 
I'm not saying you shouldn't want things. I'm saying don't lose sight that your needs have been met. He's satisfied your mouth with good things so that thy youth is renewed like the eagles. You know what that means, don't you? You're still going. You're still going. There's nobody in this room. Anybody in this room starved to death yet? Anybody? No? Okay. Well, I didn't think you'd be here if you had. Anybody in this room froze to death? No. We've all got what we need. May not have everything we want, but don't ever lose sight of the fact that God meets all your needs. And you know what you might find? You might find that if you quit focusing on your wants so much, you'd see God doing some incredible things to meet your needs. Sometimes we get so focused on on that next thing that we want that we miss God moving heaven and earth, meeting our needs. God has a way of doing that. I could tell you instant after instant. I'm talking about things within the last two months where folks had a great need and God came in just on time. Sometimes if we're focused on that which we want, we miss everything that God does meeting our needs. I wonder what your soul is wrong about tonight. Well, I'm not saying that you're rebellious. I'm not saying that you're, you're at aught with God. But maybe there's something within your soul that needs adjusted. Maybe you forgot that God's forgiven you the way that He has. Oh, you know it up here, but you're not living like He has. Or maybe you're saddled with a guilt of sin that needs to be confessed and forsaken. Take boldness from the Word of God. Whether you feel like it or not, He's forgiven all your iniquities. It's paid for in Calvary. Just come and put it under the blood. Ask forgiveness from the Son of God. Maybe there's something you're struggling with tonight. You don't think you can get victory from it. Let me remind you that the great physician, He still heals all our soul's diseases. Maybe you've forgotten where you could be. And you began to look with that downcast eye at those whose lives are a wreck and are in pieces. Let me remind you, He may not pulled you out of much, but He sure kept you from a lot. He kept me from a lot. Some of you have pulled out from a lot. Me, He kept from a whole lot in my life that I could have gone through. We ought to take a moment and thank Him for that. Nothing wrong with thanking God. Or maybe you've forgotten just where He's put you and all the blessings and all that He's done in your life and how He's met your needs. Whatever it is, why don't you take a few moments in this invitation time and why don't you just get alone, just you, your soul, and an almighty God. Have a conversation. Ask God to forgive you. Remind your soul of these things. And just start your Christian walk, your fellowship with Him. Start it afresh and anew with a clean slate and get back where you need to be with the Lord.